0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Nubix Network, Nubix in Chinese Studies. I'm your host for this episode, Lance Percy, and today we are joined by Dr. Friederike Assandri, Research Fellow at the University of Leipzig and Guest Professor at the Free University of Berlin. Hello, Friederike.
1: Hi Lance, thank you very much for inviting me here. This is a very exciting opportunity for me.
0: Well, I'm very excited too, because today we're going to be discussing your new book, um, The Tao De Jing Commentary of Chen ying Taoism, uh, Buddhism, and the Lao Laozi in the Tang Dynasty. And this is out on the Oxford Chinese Thought Series. So um, this is a I, I should say this is the first time that a complete translation of the expository commentary of the Tao Te Ching by Chen Ying um, has been Uh, has been released in English, so this is quite exciting. I was wondering, uh, to start off, could you tell us how you came to produce this translation and tell us about your career and your academic journey?
1: Okay, so this is a a long academic journey, actually, to this book. I started uh, a long time ago studying Chinese, and I studied classical Chinese, actually, with an interest in philosophy when I started and with a minor of Western philosophy to get that rounded up. Then I went to China to study in Nanjing History of Philosophy for two years. And in that period, I kind of developed a a strong interest in Buddhism. So when I went back to Heidelberg University to do my master's, I switched my minor from philosophy actually to Indology with the idea of doing Buddhist studies, learned Sanskrit and Pali and Indian religions. And... So I had this background of Buddhist studies and at the same time I was studying classical Chinese and doing these things parallel, I realized that they were how incredibly different they actually were, these two cultures, Indian and Chinese cultures, let's say. And so the the Chinese reception of Buddhism got really, I got very interested in that as Buddhism as part of Indian culture. And so I focused on that. I did a master's thesis on poetry that dealt a little bit, looked into this direction, but then for my PhD, I worked on debates between Buddhists and Taoists at the early Tang court, where I felt this reception of Buddhist ideas was being discussed uh, in a very interesting way. So this was uh, from a text, Daoxuan's Ji Gu Jin for Dao Lun where the last two chapters report actually debates at court at of the time when Daoxuan was writing. And, you know, I did my PhD thesis, I translated, I analyzed, I looked at the background, lots of background on the Buddhist participant, lots of clear ideas about the Buddhist, what the Buddhists were proposing. And then when it came to the Taoists somehow things did not fit what I knew about Taoism what I could read about Taoism didn't fit and this is in the 90s this is a long time ago and so the only thing that fit was that I found all these guys debating at court who were nowhere mentioned who were mentioned nowhere else they were mentioned in a list of Du Guangding from the 10th century so 200, 200 years later as people who commented the Laozi in a Chongxuan manner and so this is how I got actually into studying Chongxuan, which was the first first a chapter in my PhD to clarify the background. And then a book published in 2009 with Three Pines, universe, uh, Three Pines Press. And all this time I worked with this commentary of Chongxuan Ying, who kind of has been around and... It is a very fascinating commentary so i had i was looking for a chance to to actually translate the whole thing because of course translating a text like that is a very different way of engaging with a way of thinking and with a text than it is only to write books about it and pick out pieces and parts of it okay and this whole thing of Lao commentaries in the debates at, back to my PhD thesis was particularly interesting for me also because I was studying, of course, with uh, Rudolf Wagner in Heidelberg who has a big um, reputation and he had done a lot of work on the Wang Bi Lao commentary. So Lao commentaries per se were an interesting thing that I had been exposed to before. So echo, and this is how I d- had decided for a long time to translate this text and then came along uh, OUP who asked if that was possible to do. And I was very happy to do that with them. So
0: Yes. Um, and I think we we really benefit from having more translations of commentaries. As many listeners may be aware, if they're familiar with the Tao Te sometimes called the Laozi, it is one of the most translated kind of Works or texts, kind of in the world, translated into so many languages, and I don't even know how many English translations there are of the Tao Te Ching. So, I was wondering, as a translator of a commentary, where you had the Tao Te Ching base text, and then you're, which you're also translating along with the commentary, um, did the way that you were reading the commentary and translating that. Uh, the interpretations in that commentary kind of shape how you were also interacting with the Dao De Jing base text in a new way.
1: Absolutely, this is a—it's a whole new way of reading the Dao Te Jing base text that Cheng Xuan Ying proposes there, and that you have to deal with as a translator, of course. So I kind of retranslated the base text according to the commentary, which we call an extrapolative translation. That means I kind of read the base text in the light of the commentary and then adjust my ideas of the base text according to what I think Cheng Xuan Ying must have, according to the way he must have read it. And this is, I mean, one of the most fascinating qualities of the base text of the Tao Te Ching, I think, is its conciseness and its kind of interpretative openness, basically. You can read the louds and it's also all the translations we have, even if we look only at the English ones, they're all a little different or very different. So there's a lot of space in the loud the text itself, to interpret. On the other hand, it is still a text, so it's not a blank sheet of paper. You cannot just write what you think. But the space of the interpretative space is very large, and and Xuan Ying certainly used that uh to a really really big extent i mean he is his interpretation is very innovative and very um how can i say that he he reads things into the into the laozi which other people have not read into it and he reads the lines of the laozi sometimes in ways nobody had read that before and of course that influenced my uh my, how shall I say, my translation then of the, of the Lao Tzu base text. So in short, if you read the Lao base text that comes out from this commentary, it is very different from other Lao translations.
0: Right, yes. And You mentioned that uh, that Chen Shuan Ying uh, introduced a lot of innovation into his commentary of the Lao I was wondering if you could uh, extrapolate on that. What makes Chen Shuan Ying innovative? as a uh, as a commenter of the Lao um
1: there is apart from the content which maybe we can talk about after uh, there is in terms of structure and form he is extremely inno- innovative as much as he produces a very complex um how can I say that? A complex system of interpretation. So traditionally you have, for example, with Wang Bi, you have the interlinear commentary where you have the base text and then you have the words explained and the sense of the thing explained and then comes the next line of the base text and so on. Um, Cheng Xuan Yin has a lot, has a much more complicated structure. He has the before he even starts, in a like, if we take one chapter, uh, before he starts to get to the loud the base text, he gives us a structural commentary where he explains why this particular chapter is at this particular spot in the text. So he tries to give coherence to this 80, to these eighty one chapters, which seem. If you don't read his commentary, usually they seem kind of randomly assorted there. So he gives a structure to that with a structural commentary. Then he gives us, then he parses the short chapters of the the Tao Te Ching, which are like four or five lines. Usually he parses them into two or three or even four separate arguments, gives each, each argument a title. And then under this only, he explains the, he comes the base text with his explanation. So he adds layers, so to say. Layers of explanatory layers where he where he summarizes what he thinks the argument of the base text is in a full sentence that is usually much longer (laughs) than the base text itself. Then comes the base text and then he explains us how to read that line of the base text, how to interpret the single words also in order to get to what he thought as a summary of the meaning of a particular line. So you have four layers of, uh, in the text itself, you have four visual layers, basically, a structural commentary. You have the summaries of the single line arguments, and then you have the base text, and then you have the explanations of the base text. This is, as far as I know, nobody else has done a structure of commentary like, like this.
0: Right. And, um, yeah. Uh, how does uh, how does it compare also then intellectually? Does he bring any new components into the commentary tradition of Lao that did not uh, exist in previous commentaries that we have access to?
1: Well, this kind of structuring is a technique that he learned actually adapted from the Buddhist technique of Kupan, which Buddhists used to structure long texts into shorter manageable items for oral lectures and then also in commentaries. He adapts this system of chopping up a text into separate components and saying, okay, this part is about subject A, this part is about subject B, and and so on. He uses that to introduce the arguments that he felt were important and to pound basically on them. It's like repeating them over and over, like ta- talking points almost. Again, one of them is the notion that the Laozi himself and the ideal sage that is described are bodhisattva like saving figures. That is a very important point to him, which arguably, if you know the Laozi base text from other translations, might not be the really the really thing that jumps to your eyes if it's there at all, so he he extrapolates from the louds these he reads the sentences of many many chapters in a way. That he can say, okay, what he actually meant here is that this savior is, uh, this sage is a universal savior, he's full of compassion for the people, Tao is full of compassion. So he brings in notions that have not been read into the Lao Tzu before, I think.
0: Okay. And do, is this a is this a result of Chen Xuanying himself's uh, educational and religious background? Uh, is it part of the institutions that he's working with and the audiences he's trying to reach with the Tao Te
1: Well, this is a very, very big, <laughs> very big question. I'll try to elaborate on that, hopefully not uh, getting too long. I think this has to do with all of the things you mentioned. It has it is part of his background. It is part of the general situation he was writing in. And it is part. Uh, it is, has to do with the audience as well. So let me kind of elaborate on that a little bit. We are in early Tang Dynasty. Cheng Ying had been called in 631 by Emperor Taizong himself to live in the capital. And this was a time when there were uh, heavy debates, intellectual exchange going on in Chang'an, involving Buddhists and Taoists, but also Confucian scholars. Background of that is also that Taoism had been chosen to be the first teaching of the state by the first and the second emperor of Tang Dynasty already. Now, we had during the early medieval period, emperors always chose their favorite uh, religion, which they would promote then more than others. The Sui dynasty had chosen Buddhism rather strongly over Taoism. Um, the Tang dynasty gave a special twist to that actually, because um, they, they claimed Lao Tzu was their ancestor. He carried the same last name. Li was supposed to be the last name of Laozi. The Tang Dynasty ruling house was called Li as well. That gave a nice, uh, was a nice coincidence. Actually, it was supported by most probably, strongly by Daoists from the Loguan Temple near Chang'an, seventy kilometers off Chang'an, maybe, which was supposed to be the place where Laozi wrote down the Dao De Jing. Uh, the first Tang emperor had gotten support from them while he was campaigning to to actually conquer uh, the capital and conquer the Sui Dynasty and become the Tang Dynasty. So there were also pragmatic and personal connections. Let's say. Uh, so. The Tang said Lao Tzu is, is our ancestor, and that's why Taoism got to be the first teaching of the state. So there's a lot of limelight coming on Lao and the Tao Te Ching. At the same time, we know that the development of early medieval Taoism was not actually up to that point one where Lao was the uncontested main deity. We have in the South the very important revelations of the Shangjing scriptures and of the Lingbao scriptures, which then formed into the integrated Sandung Taoism. And it seems that in this process with new revelations coming in new groups of people who were Taoists, who called themselves Taoism, gaining importance, We have Lao Tzu kind of moving in the background and the important deity, it seems, of especially the Lingbao scriptures, which were very popular, was a deity called the Heavenly Worthy of Primordial Beginning, that was Yuan Shetian Sun, who was revered also in the capital. And in fact, what happened as soon as the Tang Dynasty said, Okay, we are ancestors, uh, Laozi is our ancestor. And so Taoists should have the first rank in the teachings, the Buddhists came immediately and they said, Oh, this is not right. Lao has nothing to do with the Taoists. They all revere Yuan Shi Sun, not Lao It's a whole different teaching. Lao and the Dao de Jing have nothing to do with it. Lao was an old master, a philosopher likely we would say today. So there was this the Confucian line if you look at the bibliographical part of the Sui Shu of the history of the Sui Dynasty that has a section on Taoism written by Confucian scholars exactly the same time that clearly starts with the fact, okay, Taoist's revere Yuan Shi Tianzun. That's where he, all their scriptures come from. And then they put Laozi in the section of the old masters. So there was this question of Laozi and Taoism in the capital. Did they actually really belong together or not? And I think that was one of Cheng Xuan Ying's main missions, actually, to prove that Lao Tzu was indeed the main god of Taoism as it was practiced in the capital, that he was the same as what other other people might have called Yuan Sha Tiens, that he was the in, he was the ultimate deity of Tao, so to say. And in order to do that, he had a lot of um he used all these means to integrate ideas that Taoism was proposing on the basis of Lingbao texts of, of the Taoism. I mean, Taoism is not the Tao Te Ching was written five, maybe 500, maybe 300, 400 before the common era. That is a thousand years before Chang Xuan Yin and the, the Tang dynasty. And of course Taoism had changed and developed and developed a lot and there were a lot of new tenets and new ideas in, expressed in Taoist scriptures that Cheng Xuan Ying wanted to draw back into the Laozi to integrate with the Tao Te Jing, to get this uh, integration of the Taoism of the time with Laozi, ancestor of the emperor and main deity. Yeah, and this is, since this was really not an easy feat, because uh, especially the Lingbao scriptures, which were very popular also in the capital, they were the most important part of a system of ritual initiation of the Taoists, so they had a function in in the monasteries, they all had incorporated many, many Buddhist ideas, especially the concept of the Bodhisattva savior kind of figure. That was actually originally not really in the Lao And so Cheng Xuan Yin, I think, set out to prove and show and to prove and show not only to other Taoists, but to the emperor and to all the people in the capital that Lao was well-connected with all the teachings that Taoism was proposing in the capital. Yeah, so more or less as a background, which is complicated, is a very difficult task he had there, which was at the time... Uh, also a very contested subject, because we see Buddhists and Confucians kind of going in from the sides and saying, the mm, Lao Tzu should not be connected to the Taoists, but he should be seen as a philosopher, as a master, and the Taoists are something very different. Okay. Does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, it really does. That, that that was a wonderful backdrop to this. So I'm sort of uh, fascinated now uh, about Chen Ying as a figure. Um, often when we think about philosophers, we think of them as kind of lone individuals. But um, to what extent was Chen Ying kind of integrated into various institutions in the capital at the time?
1: Well, he was, we know, actually, we know sadly relatively little about him we have only little bits and pieces of information but these bits and pieces of information indicate that he was definitely not a lone thinker sitting on a mountain eating pine nuts so to say and meditating he lived in the capital he was called there by the emperor you don't get invited to the capital by the emperor if you're you know if you're all completely withdrawn or if you get invited at least you don't say yes i'm coming he came he lived in one of the big monasteries very very large monasteries sponsored by taking at times like even half a a fang uh, that the, the the in berlin you would say keats, the, the piece um, the 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 city how do you say the part of the a quarter maybe of the city of chang'an so they were huge residential quarters and there were huge monasteries actually and he lived in one of the big ones And these Taoists were involved with the court, with the emperor, with the society, basically, they went to debates that were going on and organized in monasteries, they were organized at court, even by the emperor, sometimes large affairs, large events, he was he was invited, for example, by the emperor to a project of, like, that's a public project of translating the Tao Te Ching into Sanskrit. Uh, Xuanzang, the Buddhist um, translator who was very honored by Taizong as well, had been asked to do that. And he was supposed to be working with Taoists uh, as a group project. And Cheng Ying was one of the people who were involved in that. So that's a very visible, important project. Um, yeah so we have we don't have a lot of information but what we have indicates that he was very active actually in the community of the of the clerics and and scholar in the scholarly community all the way up to the emperor uh, in Chang'an he was called called to evaluate the Sanhuang, the the writ of the three sovereigns uh, when that uh, was forbidden. Uh, there was a text that the emperor found to have subversive uh, subversive ideas. Uh, Dominic Stervo has just written a book about that maybe two years ago, um, which was a book that was a Taoist text that was censored in the capital. And before it was censored, Cheng Ying was one of the people who was asked to look into this and debate it and see if this had to be uh, censored or not. So he was an important person. On the
0: topic of controversy, actually, there was a, there was one passage that I saw in this commentary that kind of stood out to me in terms of engaging with another controversial text, um, although maybe you'll tell me it wasn't as controversial in the early Tang as it became in later periods, and that was the uh, the Huahu coven- uh, controversy. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this, and were you surprised to see it in the commentary?
1: Uh, no, I wasn't <laughs> actually. It is, I think, the Huahu controversy was. It was controversial, of course, because the Buddhists did really not like that uh, that uh, that take on the relation of Buddhism and Taoism that was expressed in the Huahu theory. But uh, maybe I should kind of introduce that for a second. The Huahu theory is an idea that was formulated maybe already in the third century, uh, based possibly on a notion of similarity of Buddhist and Taoist teachings, but also on a notion of competition. I mean, it comes out of a competitive um, context, as far as we know, which says that. Laozi, who everybody knows ever since Shiji and Sumatian wrote that down, at least, um, in his later years left the country because he was frustrated or disgusted with the way the Zhou dynasty was developing. He left the country towards the west and disappeared in the in the great sands, basically. So he left and nobody knows where he disappeared. Uh, This was the occasion where the guardian of the pass who was sitting at Loguan um, stopped him and asked him to please leave something and he is said to have written down the Tao Te Ching at that moment and then disappeared to the west. Now this was picked up after Buddhism came in with teachings that sometimes sounded even kind of similar and Buddhists had to Find their way in a country. They were a foreign religion. They had to find points where they could attach somehow. Um, so there came up the idea okay, Laozo went to the West and Buddhism came from the West. What does that tell us? Most probably it must have been that Laozi went to the West, became the Buddha, and then this teaching came back here. So this is a has is a teaching that was very controversial in, uh, in most times of the history of Chinese Buddhism and Taoism in China. But the Taoists took it actually as a, for the Taoists, it was a point in their favor because they could argue, okay, everything is only derivative. We are the original ones. So the Taoists liked that theory quite a bit and, wrote texts to it, about it. They wrote little scriptures, the Hua Hu Jing. And, and it was controversial. The Buddhists went against it, but the Taoists had um, the Taoists had a very strong standing at the court, so they could promote, pro, promote it. And uh, they were also tied rather closely, at least that's what I think. We don't have much proof of that, but I think we can... Um, I think that on the basis of studying the commentary and a lot of other texts, that the early Tang da- Dynasty Daoists had close ties to the Loguan Temple, where this particular theory was elaborated a lot and cultivated a lot, because, of course, that was their special point of, that was their special thing. Yeah, They were the ones at the, when Lao left and went west, they were the ones where the Dao De Jing was written. And... The theory that that was the spot where Laozi left to become Buddha kind of got integrated into the Loguan lore. And from there came back into the capital and was. We find traces of this in many texts, actually, of the early Tang. Uh, these traces kind of are small and disappeared because we also find uh, the text was censored several times in the. In, in the early eighth century, I think. So we don't have too many traces, but they're there. I was not surprised to find that because we, in Taoism, it is a relatively uh, common trope, actually. I mean, the the biography of Master Wönscher, where this is also elaborated in, was an important text at the time. And yeah, so, and it fits very nicely in this, idea of a competitive environment in which cheng Ying was writing to prove that his taoism was actually worthy of being the first teaching in in the state better than buddhism and confucianism or at least encompassing anything that these religions had to say yeah
0: well yeah i think it it would make sense as a as a a among many things, a strategy for co-opting the ideas of the competitors, because there is a lot of recognizably Buddhist content in uh, Cheng Yin's commentary. Uh, you've already discussed the structure. I was wondering if you would, could tell us a bit more about the uh, the other Buddhist elements we see in Cheng Ying's approach to Taoism, uh, and to the Laozi. Yes, yeah, so
1: there's, uh, there are many, many, many Buddhist elements here. And I mean, we have the Bodhisattva, which I keep on repeating because I think it was really very important, the Bodhisattva theory, the ideal of a compassionate savior that is out to save all of humanity. We have this karma and retribution uh, concepts, which are also definitely Buddhist and were very well integrated also in Taoism. Then, of course, we have the... Um, the Madhyamika logic of um, I'm actually reluctant to get into the very details of that because it's kind of complex to explain in in words and not in writing I think but we have the, the Buddhist four step logic which basically says says um, all things, there are four steps to logic that work with negation in between them so if you want to make an statement about anything, about existence, let's say, then you can say on the first level all things exist. And then on the second level you would realize, okay, no, all things do not exist actually. And then you would realize all things do exist and do not exist at the same time. And then the fourth step would be the negation of even this third statement, which would be all things neither exist nor do not exist. So this is a specific kind of logic, uh, especially used to discuss the nature of existence, but also the nature or used to discuss also the nature of relation, for example, of Dao and the things. And he has incorporated that in the first chapter. That's where the name Chongxuan comes from the last uh, the last line of the first chapter of Lao Tzu speaks of the Chongxuan. Uh, speaks of, excuse me, I'll check on that. It says, xuan xuan, dark and mysterious and mysterious again. And that was used to elaborate a kind of logic that follows this very specific mad- madhyama- Madhyamika logic. Um, we find this kind of logic not only in his commentary, but also in other texts of the time. So that was one thing. That is also the thing that had gotten attention the earliest in the in the Western and Chinese and Japanese secondary literature, actually. But apart from this logic, which is interesting per se, we have, uh, as I said, many, many Buddhist concepts like the Bodhisattva, like the karma, retribution, and much else. Now, my take on this is actually not that Cheng Xan Yin sat down and studied many, many Buddhist texts. He might have done that too, but that is, I think not where he got uh, where he got all these concepts from. Uh, these concepts were integrated not in an officially available commentary, but in Taoist scriptures as of the Lingbao scriptures of 400. We find most of the Buddhist concepts that he has, in Lingbao scriptures of the 400. Now, Taoist scriptures of the medieval period have a very strange or very interesting characteristic, actually, since they come out of um, out of traditions which work with sacred texts that are given only to initiated disciples. So their texts are secret themselves, and you would give that um, only to a student, if you know he's worthwhile. We have this uh, in the Southern Taoist tradition. We see that already in gehong's writings, where it sometimes says, "Yeah, these texts is given away to others only every every one in a generation, or every hundred years, or every forty years." So there were a lot of restriction on the promulgation of texts actually, and the Lingbao texts come in that uh, come in that framework and of practice of dealing with texts from, they come from that environment from the same people. We have Gehung is very closely connected to uh, the people who, who after kind of came up with the Lingbao scriptures. And so there is the element that the Lingbao scriptures could not be just preached to everybody. You could receive them as a disciple, you can honor them, you can study them, you can treasure them, you can pass them on to your disciple, but not just to everybody. So there's no question of taking the Lingbao scriptures and preaching them openly on the town square. And this characteristic seems to be still, it it got less. I mean, the text became more available to people, but overall it was there and it impeded definitely Taoists from going around and saying, okay, my Lingbao scripture says this and this is why the Bodhisattva is a Taoist or something like that, yeah. So uh, the Lao Tzu was one of the few texts that could be cited legitimately as a Taoist text, and could be preached to everybody because the Lao Tzu was not an esoteric text. Everybody could read it, Confucians would read it, Buddhists would read it. We have Confucian and Buddhist commentaries to the Lao Tzu. So that was a very open text where that could be preached everywhere. So introducing the Buddhist notions, which were which he had most probably studied and Gotten from the Lingbao text, which, which with which he must have been familiar as a Taoist in early Tang dynasty, um, introducing them into the louds and made this whole thing preachable, openly preachable. He could go and talk about uh, talk about all these wonderful things, like especially. Again, the bodhisattva ideal, the idea of a compassionate savior that universally saves everything, which an emperor could emulate to make the, his realm become perfect. That was a very, very attractive idea. The Buddhists had it in their scriptures, the Taoists had it in the Lingbao scriptures, which they could not openly preach and, and use as, as sources for their arguments in public debates, for example. So he int- introducing that into the Lao Tzu was a smart thing to do.
0: Right. Yeah. And, um, you mentioned, uh, just now, uh, the relationship of the emperor to this text. And, uh, as I understand it over the, um, uh, over the many, many centuries, uh, of kind of interpretations of the hours there is a strand, um, of people who read the Louder, who read it in terms of politics rather than mysticism or abstract philosophy. I mean, even now we have many English volumes out there talking about how we can apply the Dao De Jing to business or to corporate strategy or to leadership. And um, so, I was wondering, how does um, how does Chen Ying deal with the statecraft elements of the Laozi that talk about running a country or talk about what the role of the emperor is?
1: Um, He deals with them actually in a very interesting way because he has uh, he reads them parallel as and like we're talking about the chapters 50, 53, 57 60, 61 like the, the back part of the of the chapters of the of the Tao Te Ching. he takes the old analogy actually of state and human body so to say it's the shun which is a body with a personality or a person with a body an embodied person something like that he take he reads that parallel so he reads uh, these chapters very often in two lines he first gives a statecraft Advice. He reads them as an advice of, for statecraft, and then he comes and says, "And for self-cultivation, this means." And he translates the whole thing on the level of self-cultivation. So he runs that parallel, which is very interesting, which tells us also a little bit about his his audience, his intended audience, actually, because there were. It was argued for a while that uh, that Cheng Xuan Ying actually wrote his commentary for Taoist adepts. Because he talks so much about what self about self-cultivation in there too. I would argue this is definitely not the case. He's trying to sell self-cultivation also to the emperor, but he has very strong elements where he reads parallel the uh, the cultivation of the state, so to say as the rule of uh, the art of government or rulership and self-cultivation and he he integrates that very well. I mean you find that. In, in several chapters, very parallel. Okay, for the state, it means this, for the self-cultivation, it means it should be interpreted like this.
0: Right, and also touching on that, the idea of self, self-cultivation and uh, of practice, what we see in the Laozi text uh, are some passages that talk about how learning or scholarship or uh, over-intellectualizing things is actually uh, not an ideal way of going about your life. And, you know, there are elements where the focus of practice is, is more important. And I was wondering, how does that tension carry out with Chen Shuang who's clearly an educated person, who's creating this very rich commentary of a Lao Tzu? Hmm,
1: I think we could say maybe this is, for example, I think in chapter 20, right? Um, we could say... What he like when he when he thinks of studying in many places, actually he thinks of studying as a way of acquiring knowledge that creates distinctions, yeah, so you can distinguish an apple from an orange and you can distinguish a good apple from a bad apple, and so on, so this kind of knowledge um and learning he he is against on the premise that it. Creates attachments in the mind and it creates a dis it, it enhances the discriminating mind. And, and this is very it's interesting because this is before the development of Zen Buddhism actually. We're, we're at very early stages there. And the concept is similar to that actually: that the idea is the mind should be kept calm and non-discriminating. So it should be tending towards ultimate oneness however it seems that this is more a question of attitude actually and not a question of actually not learning so he's not saying you should not be learning anything you should not be reading any texts or anything of the kind the idea is more do not enhance the discriminating mind do not um do not get attached to the things you study you learn don't make that the source of biased opinions. That's one thing he talks about very often, actually, that he says, if we study and then cling to what we study, we have a biased opinion and that closes our mind. We cannot realize our ultimate unity. We cannot um, we cannot see other things that we should be seeing as well. So it's more of um, of an argument in favor of an underlying attitude towards study or studying than against studying itself is that kind of clear or should i try again this is a very difficult question actually to explain
0: no no that that, that that's fine that uh, that that makes a lot of sense um and i'm also interested uh in so what I know about Chen Shenying uh, myself is that he also wrote a commentary on the Zhuangzi, quite a, a lengthy, uh, well, the Zhuangzi is a, a, a much longer text than the Laozi Dao De Jing. I was wondering, did you see much of a dialogue between uh, his commentary to the Laozi and uh, his commentary to the Zhuangzi? I, I don't know which one he wrote first either, actually. So would so- you be able to tell me that?
1: Um, I'm not sure about which one we, he wrote first. Uh, we tend to think that he should have written the Laozi commentary first and the Zhuangzi commentary after, because the Laozi commentary, we have a dating that Chiang Yu from Beijing Normal University derived from his preface to the uh, to that commentary. That he wrote it, that he presented it to the emperor in 637. The Zhuangzi commentary, it seems he wrote after he was exiled in 650 and sent back basically to where he came from before. And it seems that he wrote the Zhuangzi commentary then. So that is the later commentary. On the other hand, um, we have so many Zhuangzi citations and workings in the Laozi commentary that we might also think that maybe he's been working on the Tuangzi commentary all along, which is also justifiable because that thing is really a, a very long text, very simply. I mean that is not something you can write in half a year. So there is dialogue. I mean, I've I I have to say I'm I know that Lao commentary obviously very well and it cites a lot of Chuangzi, I mean it's full of chuangs citations. Um and it seems to me that he uses the Zhuangzi citations very consciously and very uh, pointedly, actually. He also, he does not just throw in, which you could at the time in Tang Dynasty, I mean, this is not a, whatever, a modern university where you have to make a footnote every time you quote something, yeah. Uh, he could have thrown in a lot of these texts without saying Zhuangzi said, but just as as a comment, he he notes almost every time he he cites Zhuangzi as therefore Zhuangzi says, and then he gives us a Zhuangzi sentence. So my sense of this is that he is using the Zhuangzi as a further buttress, actually, of of underscoring how much the lauds with the reading with all the buddhist stuff that he snuck in there so to say with all the buddhist terms and concepts that he reads in the lauds is part of mainstream chinese not buddhist Uh, tradition and literature tradition because also the Zhuangzi says the same thing. He talks in the same direction. So his interpretation, which is very innovative and which integrates a lot of things which at the time people were saying these are Buddhists, these are not Taoists. So he integrates them into the Laozi, ties them in with the base text and then says, okay, and Zhuangzi says this too and this over and over and over again. So that gives it... So the Zhuangzi somehow serves to make this Laozi interpretation more authentic, more Laozi like, less maybe Buddhist. So I think that is kind of the sense of it. Of course, apart from that, he was obviously very intensely studying the Zhuangzi too. The Zhuangzi has the same, I'm not as familiar with the Zhuangzi commentary as, with, as I am with the Laozi commentary, but we do find many, many passages, for example, explicating this twofold Chongxuan uh, or twofold mystery, the Madhyamika logic kind of style of thinking, more in the Chuangzi even than in the Laozi. Uh, so there is, he read these two texts with the same frame of mind, so to say, trying to find the same truth in them. But in terms of dialogue, I think at least for the Laozi commentary the Zhuangzi serves, he's not asking how do the Laozi and the Zhuangzi fit together. It's more like, uh, it seems at least to me more like to say, put the Zhuangzi there to prove that the Laozi reading is really authentic and fits in with the whole Chinese mainstream literature.
0: Right, yeah. Uh, I think like we've talked a lot about the things that I found like really interesting Uh, in in this commentary, in your translation of the commentary. But I was wondering, is there anything I've missed out that you really connected with in the process of translating it? Were there any chapters that you found particularly challenging or surprising uh, in the process of translation?
1: Well, there is one chapter that I particularly like and that I'm very happy to refer to actually is is the chapter 25, which ends with the famous Ren Fa Di, Di Fa Tian, Fa Dao, Dao Fa Ziran, with this uh, line that says Man imitates earth, earth imitates heaven. Heaven imitates Tao and Tao imitates self. So there are various translations of this, especially what I translate as imitates has been translated in different ways, conditioned as or so, but that's not my concern here. So this is a very interesting passage because I know from my quite extensive actually study of the Buddhist and Taoist debates of the time that Buddhists, very often came up throughout the early Tang dynasty, came up and said, okay, Taoism should not be the first teaching because Tao is not really the first teaching, uh, is not really the first cause. There is something more important than Tao, and that is Ziran, because this chapter says Tao Fa Ziran. And this was heavily debated. Buddhists brought it up in several court debates even. The Taoists usually somehow try to wriggle their way out, but never really made it. They never really had a good argument that said, okay, actually, actually, this is, uh, Ziran is maybe the nature of Tao or something, but they were always stuck with the thing that Tao, Fa, Ziran, there's something higher than Tao there, obviously. So Cheng Xuanzing in his commentary found a beautiful solution to that. Instead of reading the sentence as a subject-verb-object construction, which is repeated one, two, three, four times, he took Ren in the beginning as one subject and took all the rest as a, so he parsed it differently, he took all the rest as verb-object complements. So he reads, man should imitate the earthness of earth, the heavenness of heaven. He should imitate Tao and he should imitate Suran. And with this he solved the whole big discussion problem that there was, namely that Tao Fat Suran, it was not about Tao Fat Suran, it was about Ren Fat Suran. So with parsing the sentence in an innovative way, he he kind of he answered the claims of Buddhists that they were making in debates, where his colleagues never found good answers, actually. Uh, he answered that with a new parsing system and a new translation, which I thought was really a smart idea. Yeah, that's one of my favorite spots, actually.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a that that is fascinating, and I I never really heard of that kind of innovation for what is a really really famous passage of a text. So I was wondering, uh, given what we've talked about with the innovation and the the intellectual uh, content and input of this commentary, how influential was it? Moving forward, there were commentaries of the Lao after it. Um, uh, Was this a key and important commentary for the Lao in the Tang period or beyond?
1: This is, again, a very hard to answer question. It must have been important at its time pretty much for sure also because chang Ying was important it was i mean it has come down to us as a in two collections in the in two important collections in the Daozang. so it is not it hasn't come down as the chang Ying commentary but it is part of collections of commentaries from the 9th and 11th century so it it has survived it was read uh, another important commentator called Lirong, might have been his disciple even. He exhibits similar sim, similarities in terms of um, content, in terms of Chongxuan, I mean, this, this Madhyamika-style logical reasoning we find in other, in other commentaries as well. We do not find his very complex structuring devices. We do not find that in commentaries after him. And nor do we find this very, very wide interpretative range. I mean, he stretches the possible interpretive, the possibilities that the base text offers. He stretches them very, very far. I mean, he incorporates in the, towards the end chapters, you find incorporated the whole Ideas of underworlds, for example, of the Taoists that have for people who have bad karma how they get punished in the underworlds and stuff like that. That does take a lot of uh, explaining to tie that to the Laozi text. Such things we do not find in, for example, Li Rong's text or Emperor Shunzong's text. It moved the interpretations after him. Moved more again towards the political and philosophical readings. Less uh, less disintegration of the of religious tenets which came out of uh, Taoist scriptures that were not connected usually to the Laozi itself. In that sense, not sure how to say how important his um, influence direct direct influence let's say was. On the other hand, indirectly it was. Very important, I think, because this precisely this integration of Taoist tenets that come from Lingbao scriptures, that come from Shangjing scriptures, some of them maybe, um, with the Laozi, of course, is a very very important step for the development of Taoism uh, towards towards the towards the fully integrated Taoism that we have in Tang Dynasty, where Taoism really becomes the teaching of the state and recognized as such. And I think it also is, I do not have proof of that. I'm kind of working on finding proof for that, but that will take a long time, or at least some time still. Um, I think this might have been one of the vehicles how Buddhist thought and Buddhist conceptions got integrated into the Chinese mainstream philosophy in a way that after we find, for example, the Neo-Confucians who are so dead set against Buddhism, but still have so many Buddhist concepts in their, in their thought. And it always struck me like, why would these people, if they don't like Buddhism, integrate its thought? It could very well have been that it came through texts like this uh, this commentary to the Tao Te jing where you find certain buddhist concepts integrated with very respectable chinese um like respectable in a sense very authentically chinese texts as philosoph- philosophical texts like the laozi where where even if maybe you are which in, in the in the Tang Dynasty definitely at the towards the late Tang dynasty especially happened that uh that like Han people were really against Buddhism, not just uh preferring one over the other, but really disliking Buddhism. And so this kind of brought Buddhist thought into a mainstream Chinese philosophy line of thinking where it would be ideas that would originally have come from Buddhism would not be cited as an idea from Buddhism anymore, but as an idea that could have come out of the laozi But as I said, this is something I'm working on for the future a little bit and uh, not very clear at the moment.
0: Right. Well, thank you, Federica. We've taken up uh, quite a lot of your time already. And on that note, actually, uh, what are your current projects that you're working on, and what ideas for projects do you have in the future?
1: Well, I'm on one thing. I'm that's almost finished. I'm finally working on an English uh, translate publication and translation of my very long ago PhD work. That was a long detour uh, of the. Third and fourth chapter of the Ji Gu for Dao Lunhang, which records the debates between Buddhists and Taoists in early Tang Dynasty. Uh, that is one project. And the bigger project actually is that I am reading the Cheng Xuan Ying commentary to the Dao De Jing parallel with several Buddhist commentaries of the same time and place, so of the area of Chang'an and with the Wujing Zheng Yi, trying to find. Um, common philosophical discourses in these commentaries, because my impression of translating and working with Chengxuan Ying for a long time and with the debates at Le- uh, was that these people are Buddhists, they're Taoists, they might be Confucian, and they're writing commentaries to their sacred texts, but they're actually discussing Similar subjects with similar words. For example, all three in all three texts we find a lot of discussion about how an ideal figure can be still and moving, ti or dong, still and moving at the same time so we find certain key terms that are discussed in all three traditions and so i'm trying to kind of get a synchronic picture of what was going on there in terms of philosophical discourses that is expressed in commentaries to the different schools cutting across basically the three schools instead of going diachronically in one school only yeah that is my latest project so to say which will be I've st- I've just started that. I will need some uh, quite a lot of time still, at least two years or three, to get that to fruition. And
0: right. Oh.
1: I, yeah, I'd like to just because I'm sensing we're coming to the end. I'd like to mention one thing that might be interesting to anybody who wants to read my book. Uh, we have Zhang Yin wrote apart from this commentary a very long and very um interesting foreword or explanation where he talks himself talks about the book and what that means and about Laudze the author and what it means. And this is it's kind of separate from the commentary, so we did not put it into the book, but since it is belongs to it in some way I have translated that and we put that on the companion website of the book which is accessible if you like at the OUP website on the page of the book there is a little link to a companion website which then has a link to resources and there is the translation of this uh, foreword or explanations that Cheng Hsuanying himself wrote about the book yeah I thought I mentioned that because it's hard to find
0: (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, uh, Frederica. Um, and listeners, you've been listening to Frederic, uh, Dr. Frederica Sandri uh, talk about her book, The Tao Te Ching Commentary of Cheng Xuan Ying Taoism, Buddhism, and the Lao in the Tang Dynasty. Thank you, Frederica.
1: Thank you very much, Lance. <laughs>